I'd like to add my welcome uh, and to welcome you once again to our online service today. Uh, my name's Rob, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm on, on the pastoral staff team here at St. Peter's Fireside. And no matter where you're joining us from today, uh, no matter what time you're joining us, or whether you're even watching us and joining us later on in the week, uh, I want you to know that we are really glad that you are worshiping with us today. Uh, before we begin, will you pray with me? Lord, as we come now to your word, I ask that you would remove distractions around us. And Lord, I ask that you would come and you would be the one to speak. That you would take my little words and you would speak through them. And that you, it would make sense. And that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Holy Spirit, may you come now and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. May we never be the same. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. The other week, I was catching up with a friend of mine. He lives on the other side of the world in East Asia. And he made the comment that the last time he was able to gather together with other Christians for church was over five months ago. The restrictions from the pandemic have slowly been lifting where he lives. But for a number of different reasons, he isn't sure when he'll next be able to gather in person for church. And he explained that he's been doing this online church thing since January. His comments have been going through my head quite a lot in the last week. You see, this is now the 13th Sunday that we haven't been able to meet in person together for, for church. The 13th week we've gathered together in this, this socially distant assembly, in, in this sort of virtual exile. And not only are we in this virtual exile, but it feels like with each passing day, the world around us is finding more, even more ways to tear itself apart. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Those words from Psalm 137 have a haunting beauty to them. They are words of lament of a people who have been taken from their homes, a people who have been forced into a different way of life, a people who can no longer live the way they once did. The words of Psalm 137 are the song of a people who had tried to keep calm and carry on when their world turned upside down. They're the echoing words of a people who had thought that they had already hit rock bottom only to discover that there was still a floor that could fall out beneath their feet. They are the words which say, God, this is too much, and I'm not sure how much more of this I can take. And the question which rings out and resounds through this psalm, this passage, is this. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Today we're going to look at a part of the Old Testament 
that I think the modern church is often quite apt to just gloss over. It's a darker point of the story in the Bible, a moment marked by sorrow, confusion, and disappointment. Today, we're going to look at what happened when God's people were in Babylon. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Perhaps a few of you, when you heard those words, and especially in verse 1, you had that song come to mind from the 1970s that went platinum, about how on the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but before we get lost in the annals of, of music history, I think it's helpful for us to stop and just ask, what was Babylon? What do the waters of Babylon have to do with the Bible? The Old Testament isn't using Babylon as some sort of metaphor. No, there was a dark moment in ancient Israelite history when God's people were physically taken to Babylon. This was something we learn about from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah's day, God's people in the land of Judah had fallen into a state of rebellion against God. They had forsaken their worship of God and had started worshiping after idols and other gods. In Jeremiah chapter 19, we learn that the people of Judah had started to worship other gods, new gods that had never been known before. They weren't just worshiping these new gods, though. They were making offerings to them in God's holy temple. And more than that, they were offering up the blood of innocence. And they'd adopted the religious practices of other peoples and other nations and had started to offer up their own children to the Canaanite god Baal. They had forsaken God and his promises, and they were turning to worship other gods in his place and offering up human sacrifices to these new deities in the same places where they had worshipped God. And God raised up prophets to call them out and calling them to repent and to change their ways. But they refused. And eventually, God had had enough. So God raised up one more prophet, the prophet Jeremiah, And Jeremiah was there to warn them of the consequences of their rebellion and to lead them into repentance once more. If they didn't want to be God's people anymore, God would let them have it their way. He would remove his hand of protection that had been upon them and allow them to fall into the hand of the king of Babylon. And so that's what's happened. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon waged war against the kingdom of Judah. He pillaged Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and razed the city to the ground. But it wasn't enough for Babylon to ransack the city. They wanted to destroy the identity of the people, and they had perfected a way to do it. They wouldn't leave behind a remnant to pick up the pieces and try and start over again. No, they would relocate their conquered people, lead them into a different land, and teach them new customs. And so the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem and took the people of Judah into captivity. They shackled them in chains and took them to the shores of Babylon, where they sought to make a mockery of their culture. God's people had been led into exile. And it was in this dark moment, upon the distant shores of Babylon, far from their home, 
It was in Babylon that God's people sat down and wept because they remembered Zion. The scholar John Goldinger explains, Jerusalem had no watercourses like Babylon's. And one could imagine that people might rejoice at the opportunity to gather by them in the shade of the trees, with a chance to sit, talk, play, and sing. But people's actual and proper attitudes toward Babylon and Zion is weeping. This psalm recalls being mindful of Zion. The object of their mindfulness is thus not actually Jerusalem, that capital city with its location on the map, but Zion, the place that God chose and made a commitment to, where God came to dwell. They remembered Zion, the holy city of God, the city where God had dwelt among his people, that city where they they had been God's people. They were mindful of Zion. Now here they were on a far distant shore. They were mindful of Zion. They remembered the city where they had been God's people. They remembered the holy city where God had been their God and they had been his people. But there's something amiss in this mindfulness. John Goldinger explains that the language used here is being, for being mindful and remembering Zion. He says it implies not just an accidental remembering, but a deliberate focusing of attention and thought, a focused mindfulness on the part of a community gathered for recollection. The psalm does not say that they were praying. The words more recall people talking about God rather than talking to God. Thus, he says, they may be more an expression of religious depression. They're not talking about their experiences of God. They're not remembering their experiences with God. If anything, when they speak of Zion, they're remembering how their ancestors worshipped and dwelt with God. They themselves had little experience of Zion. They had given up on Zion and dwelling as God's chosen people. They had gone after idols and sacrificed their own children to Baal instead. Their shared identity was not as God's chosen people in Zion. No, they clung to a cultural identity as the people who used to live in a city called Jerusalem. And it's portrayed by the rest of this psalm. Because you see, their focus goes from remembering Zion to trying to never forget a place on a map. Their sights shift from Zion, the holy city where God dwelt in their midst, to simply calling it the city of Jerusalem. Their focus shifted from the Lord's holy habitation where God and his people dwell to a physical location on a map. They didn't really know how to sing God's praises anymore. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. It's interesting to compare this against Psalm 33. In Psalm 33, we read, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. 
He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, the songs of Zion would have included Psalm 33. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, they would have sung. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Praise befits the upright. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. I can just imagine the Babylonians making them sing those words and mocking them as they did. No wonder they'd hung up their lyres on the willow. To quote John Goldingay again, Hanging up one's lies signifies publicly, and maybe even before God, that one has given up praise. How could they sing the Lord's song? How could they shout for joy in the Lord? They were on the shores of Babylon. They didn't have eyes to see the steadfast love of the Lord. After all, before the walls of Jerusalem had fallen, as a people, they had given up on God. They had grown bored with his covenant and had turned to sacrificing their own children to Baal instead. They were mindful that once their ancestors had dwelt with God in this holy city, they knew the songs of old, they had heard them all their lives, and they wept. And then they ask a question. And if I were in their shoes, I don't think it's the question that I would have asked myself. But in verse 4, they ask the question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, we're not in the same exile as Judah. It's really important for us to note that this situation we're in is not the same thing. Our situation is not nearly as dire. It's not nearly as extreme. But our virtual exile is still very real. We weren't brought in chains to the shores of Babylon, but it does feel in some way like the shores of Babylon have been brought to us. I don't know about you, but being in a virtual exile in my home, keeping myself and others safe from a pandemic, witnessing world leaders mocking health experts, and hearing the cries of the harassed and oppressed all around the world, and then hearing those old wartime words of keep calm and, and carry on, they, they don't do very much for me. And then when I'm struck by the thought of continuing to worship God through, through church online, of all things, I, I have to admit that my heart sinks. A couple of weeks ago, at someone's suggestion, I was the one who wrote that sentence at the beginning of our broadcast where we say, you know, it's awkward to be on our own and to sing, but we encourage you to push through the awkwardness and to sing together. And I have to confess that I struggle to sing at home on my own. I struggle to sing along when Derek leads us in song. Because, I mean, right now, let's be honest, right now I'm speaking into a camera, and it's Thursday afternoon for me. And for you, it's, it's Sunday, maybe in the morning or in the afternoon, or maybe it's not Sunday, maybe it's later in the week. And I can't see you. Right now I can see Parker, who's standing behind the camera. And earlier I got to see Derek and Shannon. And if our virtual exile wasn't enough, like all this weird digital virtual church thing, if this wasn't enough for us, we're facing countless other sorrows. Not only can we not gather together properly in person, but many of us have had to miss weddings and graduations and birthdays and celebrations. 
Some of us have missed goodbyes and farewells. And some of us have had to forsake hospital visits to loved ones, and we haven't been able to go to funerals. Many of us have lost jobs. We've been laid off. Businesses are declaring bankruptcy. Entire sectors of the economy have shut down. And it's as if that wasn't enough. Just to add more on top, let's not forget Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And let's not forget racism is on our front doorsteps here in Vancouver. How a 92-year-old man was attacked in a store. How the Chinese Cultural Center in Vancouver was defaced. And how Dakota Holmes was attacked while walking her dog. And all over the world, military bravado is being deployed to put down protests. Not just those protests in America over racial injustice, but also those protests in Hong Kong for political freedom. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willow there, we hung up our lyres. It's not hard to see why anyone would give up praising God in a time like this, why they'd put down their instruments and weep. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The psalmist doesn't answer that question in any obvious way. There's no clear answer given for us on how to sing the Lord's song in Babylon. But they did write a song. They wrote this psalm that we're looking at right now. Upon the shores of Babylon, they wrote a song to sing. They didn't give us any obvious answer to the question, but the presence of this psalm proves that they found a way to sing upon the shores of Babylon. They found a way to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. In the 1950s, there was a researcher at Johns Hopkins University who did a really gruesome experiment. And, and for the record, I do not condone doing this. In fact, I don't think it would ever make it past an internal review board ever again. But he took 12 rats and he put them in jars half filled with water. And the point was he wanted to see what they did and how long they could survive on their own. And he watched the first rat swim around excitedly on the surface of the jar trying to find a way out. And after a little bit when it realized it, it couldn't climb out, it, it dove down to the bottom to see if it could find a way to, to claw out of this, this cage it was in. And after about two minutes, it gave up and died. Two more of the rats did the exact same thing, really. But interestingly, the nine remaining rats swam for days. The researcher, he had adjusted his experiment after the first three had died. Um, and just before he expected them to die, he would pick them up out of the jar. And he would hold them for a little while. And then he would put them back in the jar because he was a bit of a sadist. But this small break made a huge difference. The rats that experienced this brief reprieve swam much longer and lasted much longer than the rats that were left alone. When the rats learned that they were not completely doomed to dying in this little jar that they were stuck in, that their situation was not lost, that there might be a helping hand at the ready, they kept swimming. They didn't give up and they survived. Now, it's a gross, cruel, and sadistic experiment, but it shows the, the significance of hope. Those rats had a reason to hope. 
and they had a reason to keep swimming. Not everyone hung up their lyres in Babylon. Not everyone had given up their praise amidst their exile. You see, when Babylon led God's people into exile, they brought over an initial group of young men. The idea was to bring youth, the ones who were being groomed in Judah to be the next generation of leaders, and to teach them the ways of Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, we learn about how King Nebuchadnezzar charged one of his leading officers to gather to, quote, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Babylonians. Among this group of young men were four specific men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In Babylon, they were given new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four young men from Judah fared exceedingly well. They became the top of their class. And while their peers adopted the customs and habits and beliefs of Babylon, these four still clung to their belief in God, and they refused to compromise themselves. In Daniel chapter 3, they're commanded to fall down and worship a golden statue, and they refused. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called out because they refused to bow down and worship the statue. They defied the king, and in his rage, Nebuchadnezzar had them cast into a fiery furnace. Now, perhaps you've heard this story, and if you've heard it before, you know what happens. It didn't go quite according to plan for Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 23, we read, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The king then calls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out from the fire. And when they do, they see that they're entirely unhurt. And in verse 27, it says, The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. There was another in that fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God was with them in that fire. He was standing next to them. He was protecting them. He kept them safe from the scorching flames. You see, even in Babylon, God's people had a reason to hope. There, in that place where his people had given up, where they sat upon the shores of a far and distant land and remembered the destruction of their home, there, in that place, where they no longer had eyes to see the steadfast love of the Lord, there in that place, when they realized that they could no longer sing God praises, even in a foreign land, God gave his people a reason to sing. The only way we will manage to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land is through encountering him in this land. In Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego met God in the midst of the fire. 
God appeared and joined them in the furnace. God encountered his people in Babylon. You see, not even an exile can keep us from his love. The only way we will manage to sing the Lord's song in this foreign land is through encountering him in this land. In the face of the complexities and difficulties of the world around us, the deep complex webs of systemic plumb lines which go deep into the heart of social injustice and racial prejudice and international condescension, in the face of our world's complex and messy and broken web of social meaning and value and identity, of honor and shame and fear and pain and striving and success and failure and despair, into all of that, Jesus speaks a simple word. He loves you. Nothing can change the fact that Jesus loves you. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, beginning in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall an exile separate us from the love of God? No. Shall a virus separate us from God's love? No. Shall our computers separate us from God's love? No. Shall racial injustice separate us from God's love? No. Shall political unrest separate us from God's love? No. Shall world leaders separate us from God's love? No. Shall things present or things to come separate us from God's love? No. But what about angels and demons or wars and plagues? Shall they separate us from God's love? No. But what of sin and shame and anger and envy, our pride, our lust, our greed? Shall they separate us from God's love? No. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was with them in the fire, even there in Babylon. He encountered them in a foreign land. He protected them from the tongues of the flames. No virtual exile can keep us from his love. No systemic evil can keep him hidden or keep him out. No political decision, no international crisis can drive him away. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the storm. He's with us even here in our Babylon. He's with us in all these places and nothing can separate us from his love. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We sing the Lord's song through an encounter with him in this land. I was reminded of a song written by one of the guys who used to lead worship at my old church. And the lyrics go, Lord, from sorrows deep I call, when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation, for so long I've pled and prayed, God, come to my rescue. 
Even so, the thorn remains. Still, my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith, these billows roll. God, be now my shelter. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in him who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God, be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night. Be my hope and refuge. Till my faith is turned to sight, Lord, my heart will praise you. When we weep upon the shores of Babylon, how do we sing songs to the Lord? Friends, we, we sing songs to the Lord through an encounter with him in this land. Nothing can separate us from his love. He's with us in this fire. Will you pray with me? God, upon the shores of this Babylon, which we find ourselves today, in this virtual exile where our world is turned upside down, and we find that we are struggling to sing you praises. I ask that you would come and you would encounter us afresh today. In this week and in this month and in this year. God, in the midst of our world, which is turned upside down, I ask that you would come and you would meet us here. You know the cries of our heart. And you are not far off from us. And nothing can separate us from your love. So may we experience that love afresh again today. In your precious and holy name. Amen.